I'm excited about what I feel in my spirit. Not just about what I'm carrying for this morning, but I just have expectation. Well, it's just me then. Uh, but I, I, I'm full of expectation. I, I'm anticipating God moving in people's lives through you and me. Through you and me. He's already working in them. They just need to meet you so that you can lead them and point to them and be that living letter that they can read about him. Um, my fingertips aren't working very good. Um, for Christmas, Ellen bought me a model um, of, a, of a trawler. And um, I've been looking for a model of a trawler, that, but a sp- very specific type of trawler. And it had to be a European um, trawler uh, that looked in a very particular way. It had to have a canoe stern, which means that it's got a, it's got a bow. Colin would know all about this, a canoe stern. It means that the, the, the stern of the boat isn't square. It comes around into um, a point at the back. And um, because I wanted to build a model that uh, looked like Mamcos. Mamcos is a boat that I worked on when I was 16. Um, and I've been looking for photographic uh, evidence of Mamcos. I've looked in the trawler records uh, of the Southwest looking for Mamcos. Can't find her. And then um, um, for Christmas, Ellen bought me a model of a, of a German... Um, shrimping boat that is modelled on the French shrimping crabbing boat that Mamcos was. She was a French boat, and um, I, uh, I over Christmas I was searching, and I found a painting. Uh, maybe I should show you someday. But I found a painting that somebody said, "Does anybody recognise this boat?" Because my dad painted this boat. It was wrecked. It was. Uh, beached on Torpoint Beach. Torpoint is where Ellen and I first, when we got married, we lived in a little town called Torpoint. And uh, it, they said it was uh, a wreck, and it was this. My dad painted this boat, and and it's the wheelhouse and some of the deck. And somebody in the comments said, "Oh, that's uh, that's a French boat." And they said, "Why? Because it's got chain steering. You can see some of the steering gear." And then they said, "Oh, that that would be." And they said a French name of a trawler. And then somebody says, no, 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 it wouldn't be that boat because that boat was a sailing trawler and that, this boat is clearly not a sailing trawler. And then somebody says, that's Mamcos. And I got, it got my attention. And, um, and so I've been making this boat um, and because the box that the boat comes in is just a box full of little strips of wood. <laughs> and that's all it is. And a great big plan. And you've got to glue all these little bits together. And I'm using glue, and it's, there's more glue on my fingers. And so I've got no feeling in my fingers at the moment. And, um, and it's a big boat. Yeah, well, big. It's like 34 inches long. Um, but I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying myself. I sit in the summer house all on my own, um, listening to worship music, and I'm making this boat, and I'm in my element. You see, and God has blessed me in a journey uh, with all sorts of experiences, and he's blessed you with a journey of all sorts of experiences. And, um, and some of those experiences will make you think that you're 
less important than others. You'll think your life hasn't been a bed of roses, it's been a challenge. Uh, and some of you will think, well, my life has, I've never had a problem with my life. You know, it's been pretty much okay. You know, I've, I've gone through life, I've had great family, great parents, great siblings. I've got a great career. And you think, oh, you know, yeah, but how could God use me? Well, I want to talk to you about you today. Because there is no factoring you out of God's plan. Nothing that you've experienced, nothing that you've done. See, several years ago, I moaned. I was moaning at God on a Sunday morning because I was looking at a man in the congregation who was an elder who actually, a few months later, actually dropped dead. Len Hobbs, um, he dropped dead in the worship. He, he was trying to fix an overhead projector and got electrocuted. No, he didn't get electrocuted. No, that was a, me being silly. He, he was fixing an overhead projector and then went back to his chair in the and lifted his hands to worship and just fell down, passed away. But a few weeks earlier, I was looking at him and I was jealous because he'd lived in the same house all of his married life. All his kids lived around him in the same streets, the same area of the city. He'd done one job all of his working life. He'd been in one church all of his worshiping life. And, uh, and I thought, Lord, that man has got it all together. I've, I've lived in 20 houses I've, I've done umpteen different types of jobs. I felt as though I never finished any job because I would do this particular job and then uh, transition into another job that was better or more, more financially rewarding or whatever. And I, and I was putting myself down and then God spoke to me and just said, Bill, I've allowed you to do all of your heart's desires. All the things that you've ever done have been things that you've longed to do. And that's me blessing you. And now... I want you to use your life to bless me. I've given you all these things so that you can build on for my glory. And I felt so kind of released from the pressure of feeling as though I was like nothing compared to these superheroes of Christianity that have got it all together like you lot. And I would factor myself out and down. And God says, no, you need to understand that I factor you in. I factor you in, and you are significant and important, and I want to talk to you this morning about that. I'm going to read you some scripture, then I'm going to ask Kinley to come and read a scripture, and then Dave, would you share your thought? Actually, I don't know what your thought is yet, so I'm interested. Okay, let me read this to you. This is uh, Matthew 4, I'm picking up where we were last week about the kingdom of God. And these are, Matthew is specifically putting into Jesus' mouth these words at the very beginning of his ministry, his public ministry. He says, from then on, from when on, Jesus became aware that John the baptizer had been arrested and then he set off uh, moving through the region explaining that uh, the kingdom of God was coming. But these are the words that Matthew puts in Jesus' mouth. To sum up this moment of the beginning. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. 
They left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. He called to them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Jesus traveled. There was a pause then. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom and healing every kind of disease. Three things that Jesus did all of his life from here on out. He taught people about God. He announced the good news about the kingdom and he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria and people soon began to bring to him all who were sick and whatever their their sickness or disease or if they were demon possessed or epileptic or paralyzed he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from the east of the Jordan River. Come back to you in a moment. Kinley, would you mind reading Psalm, that Psalm that you've got? Uh, this is Psalm 32. And, uh, you know, just very, very quickly, is it not wonderful that, that even though sometimes we slip and we fall and things get on top, you know. God just embraces us, and God just wants to envelope us in his love. Anyway, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. (laughs) I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which has no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man whose trust is in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. You know, when when these thoughts come and they're intrusive, give them no foothold. Deal with it straight away and keep it short. God loves everyone. It's just amazing. Bless. Okay, thanks, Kimmy. That was fantastic. We um, he shared that with us in small group uh, this week, and it it really blessed us all. And uh, I just wanted to share something that I think God's put on my heart. And and we've just been through Christmas. We've been through New Year, and um, 
Some of you, like myself, maybe took on some New Year's resolutions. Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? New exercise regime, new diet, no? new course of study. Yeah? Yeah. How, be honest now. How long do those New Year's resolutions last? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say... I was going to say, well, probably not past the end of January, but yeah, often not that, that, that long. But I want to encourage you because um, I know some of you may have seen on social media over Christmas a, a particular image that encouraged me, and I want to share it with you. Um, it was a picture of Santa Claus, right? He wasn't carrying a big bag of presents and he wasn't riding a sleigh. Santa Claus has actually had his hat off and he was kneeling. And he was kneeling next to the, the baby Jesus in the manger. And the caption just read a verse from Philippians and it said, every knee will bow. And after what Bill shared last week, and we're we're looking at more this week about the kingdom, kingdom implies there's a king. And that's all we need to do. And that's, God put on my heart something I need to do this year. Every day, make him king. Make him king and then you will become part of his kingdom. Wow. Thanks, Dave. That's so encouraging. And Kinley, thank you for this verse, uh, this uh, psalm. These verses um, uh, highlight what I have in my heart for us this morning. And so I would encourage you to go back to Psalm uh, 32 and read it for yourself. Read it in different translations. Get a, get a grasp of these words because they are life-giving. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning about the kingdom of God. But what I want to talk to you about is about the fact that you are the salt of the earth. You, if I could look at every single pair of eyes, if you, you are the salt of the earth. You, you, yeah, even you who are questioning and doubting and saying, what, me? Yeah, you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. If you've got faith in Jesus and who he is and what he did, he's calling you, not me. I'm just repeating his words. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. I'm going to show you a video clip, Dan, if that's okay. It's just a few minutes long. This is the... um, Yeah, I'll talk to you in a moment. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven. Yes. But how is it the map? If someone wants to find me, those are the groups they should look for. And then? You are the salt of the earth. Fifteen says the same thing that I just read to you out of Matthew. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When we believe, we become these people who have the potential to be salty in circumstances. The gospel is just good news. Um, I'm going to quote Tim Mackey here. He says this, God so closely binds himself to humans in the incarnation of Jesus that he becomes the human that we, uh, that we were made to be. And then through him, we become the humans that we were made to be. Through his model, we become who God is calling us to be. That is summed up in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching that we'll look at over the weeks to come. But I have a question. Uh, as I was reading through these scriptures, I found myself saying, Who's the crowd? Who's the crowd? Because you see, in uh, Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it's t- entitled Matthew, we've got a title here, not Matthew's title, but we put a title in there, the Sermon on the Mount. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, 
Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Now, if you've been raised in Christianity and churchianity, you will be thinking the disciples, when you read the word disciples, you'll be thinking of the, the twelve, those disciples gathered around him. But he says, here Matthew clearly says, the crowds were gathering and his disciples gathered around him. And I think, you see, because if you continue reading through Matthew's gospel, you'll find that he's, he hasn't yet called some of the disciples to himself. So is it just the four fishermen that sat with him and then there's some people eavesdropping? No, I think Matthew is meaning that all those that were following the crowds that were coming from all over the place, if you go back, it says um, the news about him spread as far as Syria and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick and whatever their sickness or disease or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Crowds, large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from the east of the Jordan River. Who made up the crowds is my question. It wasn't just the disciples. It was people that got an ear full of something happening. And their hearts began to hope that maybe Maybe this leprosy can be dealt with. Maybe this issue of blood can be dealt with. Maybe, maybe the oppression that I live with can be eased. Maybe, 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 maybe. And hope began to rise and they began to follow. And disciple means follower. And so these crowds potentially could have been all sorts of disillusioned, disheartened, downtrodden people. You see, Jesus is calling us all to rule with authority. Dave said so brilliantly in that picture of Father Christmas with his hat off, kneeling and worshipping. Every knee will bow. We are called to submit to the primacy of the king. That's how kingdom is established. When we honor the king. And we acknowledge the king. And we live within the guidelines and the principles of his kingship. You see, I had a thought. I'm longing to get into the garden at home. Our garden is beginning to sprout and there's, there's tulip bulbs uh, poking their little heads up. There's daffodils that are about to break into bloom. There's primroses already blooming. Uh, but I can't wait because it looks like a wasteland at the moment. It's brown. Everything seems to be brown. But there's these little little green tips of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tulip bulbs that I've had to plant that we've planted. <laughs> you see, the growing in the garden happens because of creation. I don't have to go and make these things grow. They grow because of the way they've been created. They grow, and if I didn't do what I do, and Ellen didn't do what she does, we would have a weed patch. We wouldn't have a garden. Oh, there'd be some nice flowers in there, in amongst all the nettles and brambles, and in a, uh, 
plants in the wrong place. My gran used to say, Bill, a rose in a cabbage patch is a weed. And what she meant was the wrong thing in the right place is still the wrong thing. And, um, and see, so I found myself thinking about our roles in this, the kingdom coming. You see, we can just say, oh yeah, the kingdom's going to come. But if we don't work and toil and exercise in making a garden out of what is growing, it just grows. And sometimes it grows inappropriately. But it means that we have to put some effort into putting into practice what we know needs to be done. So the growing in the garden happens because of creation, but making the garden happens because we act on our commission. We will become kingdom people if we put into practice what we know we need to be like to manifest the kingdom. That's what the Beatitudes are about. That's what Jesus is unpacking and Matthew is recording in the, what is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's modeled by Jesus, the new Adam. In other words, Jesus is advancing the kingdom. Jesus builds the kingdom. But my question is, how and with who? How does he build his kingdom? How does it extend? How does he advance it? And I want to say, I think it's by forming a people who submit to the rule of the king. It's, it's about people submitting to the rule of the king. That's how the kingdom gets established. And, but how does that forming take place? And who is formed? The Sermon on the Mount is a map, we heard the, the actors say here. They're trying, the, the directors of the chosen are trying to communicate These are not just a standard of rules that you have to live by, but they're a map to help us find others that are modeling Christ-likeness and so that the kingdom becomes to be established. When we started in Llanelli, we were talking just this morning. uh, Ellen and I paused. Well, I paused because I was driving at uh, at the top end of Pottery Street and looked at Calvaria Chapel and I said, do you think that building will ever be redeemed? Because we used to meet in there. And in the early days, the worst days, were there were six of us. And three of those were J- Kate and James and me, because Ellen was poorly that day. And there were three other people. And, and it was just so challenging. But on that particular day, two Koreans walked in. And, um, and I, I chatted to them. And, I, I, and they said this... Uh, they, were, they came independently of each other, and one of them was a pastor in Yongi Cho's church in Seoul. And he eventually transferred his membership from Yongi Cho to Myrtle House, well, it wasn't Myrtle House, to Elam Llanethli. He transferred his membership from one of the world's biggest churches to maybe the smallest church that anybody ever could imagine. But they said, uh, they said one of them said it like this to me. They said, me here hot. That was the extent of their English, and I completely got it. They could sense the Spirit of God at work, and they were kingdom people, and they recognized kingdom people. And when you, when you are a kingdom person who lives in light of, you, of what you know about the kingdom, other kingdom people will find you, and, and you'll begin to establish a kingdom in a community. It'll be extraordinary, and that's what you're part of, and that's what you're called to. That's what you're commissioned into. And the, you, are these, you are the crowd. 
You are the crowd. This crowd was made up of the poor, the impoverished, the downtrodden, the sick, oppressed people. They were oppressed by the Romans. They were oppressed by demons, some of them. They were oppressed by religion. There were women in there following him. Just treated atrociously. There were fishermen, the uneducated the unimportant and the marginalized. And they were all referred to as his disciples. I want to show you a couple of, uh, three pictures. Um, uh, I was listening, uh, again, I was listening to uh, Mackie and he, he mentioned these artists and um, because I was listening to a sermon, uh, because he mentioned them, I couldn't see what he was talking about. And, um, and so I went looking and, um, and I was astounded by what I found. Now, let me tell you, these artists, uh, I've been very selective in the three pictures I'm going to show you because some of the other pictures, some of the other things that they create are just uh, lewd, rude, irritatingly kind of sexual. But they're two artists. They're not husband and wife. They're uh, two friends. Uh, In the 1990s, they began to uh, create art out of junk. And uh, can we show the first one, Dan? This one here. Um, now, some of you are far away from the picture, but if you look at this picture, it's just some tin cans and bits of junk arranged on a table. And all of them, if you look closely at them, uh, it's Tim Noble and Sue Webster are the, car- are the artists. All of these uh, tin cans have been shot with air gun with an air gun, a pellet gun. And so they've got loads of little holes in. And, uh, and it's just on a table, it's just an arrangement of rubbish until the light, the spotlight goes on. And when the spotlight goes on, you see the silhouette of a city. But without the light, it's a pile of junk. Yeah, maybe you're going to get where I'm going, but without the light, it's a pile of junk. Can we show the next one? This is called The Young Man. And it's a pile of junk arranged in a particular way that looks like a pile of junk until you see what it represents when the light is switched on. When the light is switched on, you see a silhouette. You see a silhouette. But without the light, it looks like junk. But with the light, it becomes something. It represents something that you can't see without the light. Can we do the last one? This is literally a pile of trash. It's called dirty white trash with seagull. (laughs) That's what it's called. Because at the bottom, you'll see here, there's a stuffed seagull here picking at the chips but again it's called dirty white trash because it looks like a pile of rubbish until you put the light on and what I want to say to you using these as an illustration rubbish becomes art when light illuminates and so many people in our 
world today. So many people in our community today. So many people in your families. So many people think they are just rubbish. They've got very little value. But when the light of the world shines on them, look at what you look like. Look at you. You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're extraordinary. You're precious. You're valuable. But when people have no light, what we see is rubbish. You see, John records some of Jesus' words in John 9, 5. He says, but while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Matthew 5, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You see, you, when you shine your light, your love, your hope, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your tenderheartedness, when you shine that into other people's lives, you can turn what looks like trash into treasure. You can be the change agent where, who the, whom the kingdom of God moves through and extends through. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. But sometimes people need to see your trash illuminated with the light to actually value the treasure that you are. And we need to change the way that we think. You see, these, uh, what we're going to be going into in, Ma- in uh, Matthew and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount um, are, are so key to helping you switch your light on. It's not a r- bunch of rules and regulations that you have to fulfill. It's things to illuminate your journey. Jesus said in that clip, it's a map. It's to help you f- get from A to B to C to D all the way through to the end of your days here on earth So you can enter into his presence, having run the race with perseverance. You see, um, have you read the book, um, No Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom? Do you know the story that she tells? And and it's, um, you can hear her tell the story. Um, I've listened to her telling this story, where she is preaching out of the Sermon on the Mount about forgiveness She's talking about forgiveness in a church in Germany. And, um, and as she's uh, winding up her sermon and uh, finishing and just praying, a gentleman gets up out of the audience and makes his way to her, and she instantly recognizes him with dread. With dread, because this man was a guard from Ravensbrück, where she was uh, imprisoned by the Germans because her family were hiding Jews and um, her sister was killed there her father was killed there but she survived but she instantly recognized this man as he walked towards her as a guard from this camp and um, her shame and her rage boiled because her memory the last time she remembers seeing this man She was walking past him naked as a 16-year-old girl, as this man was bullying and torturing and 
doing the things that he did to the inmates of that camp. And he came up to her and he thrust his hand out and he said, I know Jesus has forgiven me. I'm a Christian. I know Jesus has forgiven me, but I need you to forgive me. Will you please forgive me with his hand out? And she says, she, everything in her said no. Everything. Everything in her hated this man for, because he killed. She saw him as the killer of her sister and her father. And then she realized what she'd been teaching and what she'd been talking about, about forgiveness. And she knew in her Noah that she needed to forgive this man, but she, everything in her said no. And then she chose to go against her will and submit her will to the king. And she gave him her hand, grasped his hand and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And she says, it's it's something like this. She says, instantly she grabbed his hand, electricity shot into her shoulder, down through her arm, into his hand, and she said, I have never felt the love of God like that, ever. It overwhelmed me that God could love me in this moment uh, where I was having to submit my will to his kingdom will. And, And I was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. You see... They, they can be a bunch of principles, they can be a bunch of guidelines, or they can be a way you choose to live. A way you choose to live. You see, the, this isn't just good teaching. This is kingdom words of life. And they apply whether you're in the kingdom or not, because they're kingdom principles. Let me illustrate this. Mahatma Gandhi... Do you know who he is? Was Mahatma Gandhi? All of us older guys are nodding. The younger guys are going, "Huh? Who?" Well, he he was um, uh, he was a, a barrister. He trained in London uh, as a barrister. Uh, he then went back to uh, India to actually try to uh, establish a law firm. And he began to work with peasants that were being uh, persecuted and uh, it didn't take off. And so he moved to South Africa and for 20-something years in South Africa, he he ran a law firm uh, working with the marginalized and the oppressed and the downtrodden. And then eventually he moved back to India and he he established a move in India where he began to overturn the oppression of the poor and the marginalized and the untouchables under his ministry, under his life's work, the untouchables were uh, that character, that um, social category was removed. You were no longer an untouchable. But Mahatma Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount twice a day for the last 40 years of his life. And he was a Hindu. He was never a follower of Christ. He was a Hindu. But he saw these principles, these guidelines, as something to actually choose to live by. And it says this in Wikipedia about Gandhi. It says, 
He led the successful campaign for India's independence from the British rule. He inspired movements for civil rights and freedom across the world. And I've written, I wonder what inspired him. I wonder who inspired him. He made a difference. Because these principles are kingdom principles. And if you apply kingdom principles, the king reigns. Even in a community, in a society that says, oh, we don't acknowledge God. But if we live by kingdom principles, the king has a foothold. The king has a foothold. And we can point to where these guidelines and principles and lifestyle choices come from and lead to. John 8, 12 says this, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. His heart and his behavior influenced the crowds, the people that were oppressed and marginalized and downtrodden and disappointed as well as some wealthy and some influential people. But the vast majority of people feel overlooked, misunderstood, downtrodden. We see all of our insecurities and we live with an imposter syndrome often. We think, oh, all these other people, they read their Bible every day. They pray, they were praying up this morning at five o'clock, Praying, Lord, give Bill something decent to say. Please, Lord, help help him. He needs help. And you think, oh, I sometimes can't remember where I last put my Bible down. Where is it? I, oh, I, and we feel ins, insignificant. And I want to say, no, you're chosen. You're favored. You're blessed. You're blessed. Jesus' value of the person is a revolutionary life principle. When you begin to value people as the king of kings did and does, you will be manifesting the kingdom. If we all shared his value of a person, can you imagine what your family would be like? Can you imagine what your family would be like? Can you imagine what church would be like? Wow. Can you imagine what our community would be like? It would be healthier and safer. I'm going to finish with a story. Um, Back in um, 2000, I think it was, uh, maybe 2001, uh, end of 2000, beginning of 2001, no, end of 2000, um, I went looking for my journal, one of my journals, and I couldn't find it. It must be at home because I thought I left it here, but it, it must be at home. But uh, I wanted to read to you out of my journal. But I remember the thing that I want to read to you. I, I, it's, it's in me. Um, when I went to Korea, um, I went for uh, 12, uh, 12 days, I think I went for. And I preached 13 times in 12 days in all sorts of different churches. Uh, I went on my own. I was completely disorientated. Uh, I introduced somebody recently to the word discombobulated. Uh, because that's how I was. I was completely discombobulated. I didn't know which way was up. I couldn't read any of the, the signs. I flew into an airport. I was picked up and driven everywhere. Uh, I didn't have to navigate. I was just 
put in a car, taken, unpacked, preach, get back in a car, drive to another place, unpacked, preach, talk, eat food, eat food, eat food. And, uh, and I was overwhelmed and disorientated and uh, totally discombobulated. And, um, and um, uh, what I was going to read, I was going to read you two accounts. Because in one journal entry it says, um, it's six o'clock. And um, uh, I've woken up feeling raring to go, full of life. Oh, it says in my journal, oh, I've just realized I looked at my watch upside down and I've been asleep 20 minutes. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, that's how discombobulated I was but then uh, there was there's another entry uh, because I God was working in me and speaking in me because I was I was feeling like a nobody I was feeling like uh, I had imposter syndrome uh, I was uh, speaking to a church of uh, thousands and thousands of people I was in their prayer meeting speaking at a prayer meeting and there were about 1500 people in a prayer meeting I went to Prayer Mountain, uh, Yongi Cho's Prayer Mountain, because apparently there's lots of prayer mountains. I didn't realize that until I was there. Um, and I was in a, in a prayer meeting, and there were 4,000 people in a room for a, a prayer meeting, and they had their sleeping mats. And uh, the, the uh, entrance lobby was all shoes, mountains of shoes, because everybody took their shoes off and, to go into the main hall. And you walked in there, and there were people sleeping, because they'd been there two days or more. And this was a Monday afternoon, and the, this fiery, gray-haired Korean man, I you don't often see gray-haired Korean guys, but this gray-haired, bearded Korean man was preaching like you wouldn't believe. And I understood two words, amen and hallelujah. <laughs> because when he said something, everybody would go, Amen! And I would, so I could go, Amen! And then they would shout, Hallelujah! And I, it's an international, two international words. But um, I had this dream. Uh, I had several encounters with God there, but I had this dream. And in this dream, um, it was very disturbing. In the dream, I was in a small room, maybe this kind of size, just very small room and there were half a dozen or more people in there and um and as i uh, there were these people in there and i walked through a door that door there into this room here but i'm watching it from here so i'm seeing myself come into this room with all these what i think were church people and one of them i knew and in his arms he had a brand new baby and he put this baby and instantly I walked into the room. I knew something was wrong in the room. Something was wrong. What's going on? And he, he put this baby into my arms. And he said, uh, it's not good, Bill. It's not good. And they, then all these people filed out of the room and left me in the room on my own, holding the baby. And I, I, I looked at this baby, and this baby was sick, really poorly. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And so I began to speak life to this child, this baby. I just began to say, uh, tell him stories about me running in, in fields and climbing on haystacks and making dens in the wood and swimming in a river. And all the things I did as a child, I just began to pour 
over this child, talking about life and health and growth and fun and activity and exercise and all the things that I did as a child. I just talked and talked and talked. And the more I talked, the healthier the baby became. And my heart rose. And then the baby cried and went all the way back to being sick again. And my heart sank. And I thought, what do I do? What do I do? I can't do anything but the same. And so I began to talk about running and climbing and swimming and swinging and all the things that I did as a child. And I talked and talked and talked over this child. It got healthier and healthier and healthier and healthier. And then cried and went back to the beginning. And I, I thought that I, I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left. I can't do that again. And then I found something. Something drove me deeper into myself. And I, I just went really deep and just began to do the same thing from deep within me. Talking about loving and laughing and crying and running and leaping and all the delights of growing as a child. And it got healthier and healthier and healthier. And I woke up. Just woke up out of that dream. There, with a child getting healthier and healthier and healthier. And I'm laying in the dark in a freezing cold flat in Seoul because there was no heating and it was minus six. And uh, I could see my breath in the cold shower that I had to have every day because there was no heat. And I'm laying freezing cold in bed and saying, God, what are you showing me? What are you saying? And I heard these words. Build a healthy church, Bill. Build a healthy church, Bill. Build a healthy church. And for a a long time, I thought that was a picture of the church until I shared it with a bunch of pastors because they were asking me, how did it go in Korea? And I said, I had this dream and I don't understand it completely. I think it's the church and God, you know, over time the church is healthy and then it gets sick and then it gets healthy. And, uh, and, And Jesus just speaks love over this, his baby, the church. And they said, no, that's, no, Bill, it's your church. It's your church. It's Myrtle House. It's your church. And so my mission has been for the last 24 years to speak life and love. And that's my mission today. To help you be healthy. That you're not marginalized. You're not overlooked. You might feel sick and impoverished. But God has purposed for you to be carriers of the bread of his presence to be carriers of the bread of his presence. Build a healthy church, you lot. Build a healthy church, you lot. It's not just me. My task is to equip you and encourage you and support you and inspire you to be builders of the kingdom. As you learn to apply some of the things that we're going to look at, some of the things that you already know, the trash that the world might have said you are with the light of the world shining on you and out of you you become the treasure that makes the kingdom visible my last words to you you are you are the salt of the earth amen
Amen.